This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. The makers of Camel Cigarettes present Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, private detective. people smoke camels than any other cigarette. The reasons behind camels' great popularity are flavor and mildness. Smoke only camels for 30 days and see how rich and flavorful camels are pack after pack. See how mild they are, how well they get along with your throat week in and week out. Then you'll know why camels are America's most popular cigarette. Here, transcribed, is Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. In my business, nearly every case I get mixed up in has some kind of an interesting angle. If it isn't some woman who spotted a neighbor floating bodies in his bathtub, or a lonely husband who got lonely because he disposed of his wife with a meat axe then it might be a case like the one I got mixed up in last week. Mr. Richard Diamond? I agreed with him, watched him close the door and walk into my office. I looked, closed my eyes, looked again. I made up my mind I wasn't having hallucinations. He couldn't have weighed more than 140, a kindly face that supported a sad sort of a smile. He was dressed well, and his actions seemed perfectly normal. But there was one little thing that bothered me. He was a good eight feet tall. You seem a little disturbed, Mr. Diamond. Oh, oh it's nothing, no, just a, just a high fever. About 110, I'd say. You've noticed something out of the ordinary? Oh, no, 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 no. I work for a carnival, Mr. Diamond. Oh? My name is Adam Rayburn. I'm billed as the thinnest man in the world. And you must come close to being the tallest. Seven feet eleven in my stocking feet. Well, I'm glad to know you, Mr. Rayburn. What can I do for you? I wish to hire you. I charge a hundred a day in expenses. That's agreeable. A hundred in advance. That's just so I won't have to take time off from your trouble and sell some of my steel stock. Here's a hundred. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rayburn. You are now the proud owner of a pedigreed private detective. I suppose you'd like to know about my problem. Well, it's cheaper than letting me guess. There's a girl who works at the carnival. Her name is Rowena. Rowena? Professional name. You've heard of her? Oh, yeah. She's a dancer, isn't she? That's right. We've been in love for some time. Oh, she's a wonderful girl. Beautiful. All that any I watched him talk ever... about her, and I swallowed a big lump in my throat. Adam Rayburn, almost eight feet tall, was reminiscing about his love with all the sincerity of a handsome Romeo. I'd seen Rowena, and I could certainly understand why the skinny guy had it bad. But being a pretty practical guy myself, Adam just didn't look like the type a girl like Rowena would go for. But I always say you never know about some things. She's in trouble, Mr. Diamond. What kind of trouble, Adam? 
Oh, that's why I came to you. I don't know, and, and she won't tell me. She won't let me help her. But it's obvious whatever trouble she's got in is, is more than she can handle. And you want me to find out what it is? Yes. Well, I'll do my best. Oh, thank you. It's very important to me. He told me about the carnival and where I could find Rowena. He also warned me that if Rowena found out, she would be more than mildly unhappy. He thanked me again, shook my hand, and went out of the office. I closed up, went home, and napped until six. Then I headed for the carnival. Hey, hey, hey! Step right up on the inside. It is the most amazing spectacle ever to be witnessed in this hemisphere. Lungo the Gorilla Boy captured it's in the, the wild. High boy, safe, sensational ride. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen. Ride the high boy. Only a dime. Fast, safe, sensational ride. Carnival. Colorful, gaudy, fascinating if you're five or fifty. You get initiated when you're a kid and you never forget it. The nostalgia of hot dogs and mustard, pleasant emotions kicked up when you smell the sawdust or see a little kid buy a stick full of cotton candy. And then you look up and see Rowena dancing on the small stage in front of the tent, doing just enough of her bit to entice the customers and not offend the sheriff. And suddenly you realize how fast you grew up. I purchased a ticket, making sure to flash all of the hundred-dollar retainer, and went inside. The tent filled in a hurry, the lights went down, and on came Rowena. She did her bit, the usual routine, and got off. I waited for the tent to empty and then went back to look for the beautiful dancer. There was another small tent in the rear of the big one, and as I approached, I could hear two girls talking. Yes, I understand about that. Sure, Rowena, sure, I'll keep it for you. Now look, Dixie, I don't want anybody to know about it, not anybody. He's giving you trouble, huh? Yes, he's been... What's the matter? Um. Uh, yes? Who is it? Uh, uh, Rowena? Yeah? You, um... Want to see me? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be going. Oh, don't let me bust up anything. Uh, that's okay. I, I gotta be going anyway. This is Dixie Jones, Mr. Uh... Uh, Diamond. How are you, Dixie? Bushed. Well, nice meeting you, Mr. Diamond. I'll talk to you later, Rowena. Mm, cute. Mm-hmm. Now, what can I do for you, Mr. Diamond? I just saw the show. Good. I'm glad you liked it. Is that why you stopped back? Oh, I thought I'd like to meet you. It's against the rules. Whose rules? The guy who runs the carny. Not your rules? Sometimes. Mm, not this time. Well, I'll let you know as soon as I find out what's on your mind. Well, that shouldn't be too difficult. I'm the type who likes to break rules. Well, you're a little old for the usual schoolboy and too hep for a yokel. Uh, what do you do, Mr. Diamond? Well, nothing obvious, but I make a few bucks, and occasionally I use the few bucks to buy a pretty girl a drink. Just one drink, Mr. Diamond? Score for Diamond. She was interested, and I made a mental bet with myself that she'd spotted my bankroll and not my blue eyes. She excused herself, did a quick change behind the screen in the corner of the tent. She came out dressed in mink and a black number that could have snarled up traffic on any quiet intersection. 
She took my arm and we headed for the nearest pub, in this case, the Fallen Duck. A cozy little bistro that certainly seemed appropriately named. If a duck had wandered in, it would have taken a nosedive in a hurry. Man, boy, duck, or diamond, nothing could have stood for long. Mm, it's a little crowded. Oh, it's probably necessary. If all the people left at once, the walls would fall in. <laughs> Here's to, uh... To what, Mr. Diamond? Well, to you calling me Rick. I'll drink to that. Rick. <sighs> aren't, uh, aren't you a little warm? Mm-hmm. But you'll suffer a little and keep the mink on. Mm. It's a nice coat, isn't it? Mm, charming. You do all right. Diamond bracelet, the mink. I could use another drink. Oh, sure, sure. Without the water. We sat and I watched her kill a few more, and in between times she moved. The pitch was subtle and as practiced as a lion trainer with a kitten. She worked hard and I played along. It wasn't difficult. Rowena was quite a girl, and as far back as I can remember, I've liked girls, particularly the type you classify as quite a girl. About the time I was offering my fullest cooperation, we were interrupted. Hey, there's Rowena. Yeah, swell. Hmm, friends of yours? It's Dave Sylvester and his wife. He owns the carney. How are you, Rowena? Fine. Hello, Paula. Hello, Rowena. This is Mr. Diamond and Mr. and Mrs. Sylvester. Hi. Hi. Uh, can I buy you two a drink? Well, that would be... No, thanks, Dave. We were just leaving. Uh, come on, Rick. Well, nice meeting you. Nice meeting you, Mr. Diamond. Yeah. Sorry you gotta be going. Good night, Dave. Paula. Well, that answers that. Not friends. I've known Dave for a long time, way before I joined the Carney. Uh, what makes you think we're not friends? Oh, just a casual observation. I got the idea when your hair stood straight up. You better take me home. And I took her home. Rowena didn't have much to say on the way. She was worried, and she dropped the pitch. We got back to the carnival about 1 a.m. and walked down the deserted boardwalk toward her trailer. Up to that point, I had made up my mind about several things concerning the lovely Rowena. First, she didn't figure to be in love with Adam Rayburn. Second, if she did have troubles, she hadn't given any indication until Dave Sylvester and his wife had shown up at the fallen duck. At her trailer, she stopped at the door and turned to face me. Oh, I could see it coming. The pitch was on again. But now she was being cautious, too. Who are you, Rick? Me? Oh, I'm uh, just a guy. I told you, just a guy who wanted to buy you a drink. Nothing else. <laughs> what else? Worried? A little. Why pick on me? Well, honey, you go on inside and take a look at the mirror. If you're a little objective about it, you'll get the idea. Rick. Yeah? Good night. Mm, well, good night. Rick. Yeah? Will I see you again? Yeah. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? <laughs> Wait a minute, Adam. Wait a minute. Let me go. Oh, take it easy. What's the matter with you? Why do you want to slug me for? Why did you kiss her? Why did you kiss her? Oh, for Pete's sake. I saw you. I saw you kiss her. Well, you didn't see very well then. It was the other way around. I didn't hire you to take her out and make love to her. Oh, come on, Adam. Get hold of it. I don't want to hear it. Oh. What's the matter? That tent. It's on fire. (laughs) 
I turned and looked in the direction he was pointing his skinny arm. The small tent Rowena had used for a dressing room was on fire. Fire! Fire! Some others had already noticed it, and by the time we got there, the tent was completely engulfed in the roaring flames. Every one of the troop turned out in odd stages of undress and got a bucket line going, but the tent was past saving. The fire department arrived, put out the last of it, and then one of the troop, picking his way through the charred ruins, made a grisly discovery. Hey, hey, there's a body in here. Before we continue with Richard Diamond, here are a few words about smoking enjoyment. You know, smoking is a day-in, day-out pleasure. And it takes day-in, day-out smoking to tell you how rich-tasting and how mild a cigarette is as a steady smoke. One puff won't tell you. One sniff won't tell you. Smoke only camels for 30 days, and you'll see why more people smoke camels than any other cigarette. You'll enjoy the first puff and every puff, for Camel's costly tobaccos are properly aged and expertly blended. No other cigarette has Camel's rich, full flavor, a flavor you'll never tire of. And no other cigarette gives you this proof of mildness, proof based on steady smoking. In a coast-to-coast test of hundreds of people who smoked only Camel's for 30 days, noted throat specialists reported... Not one single case of throat irritation due to smoking camels. Make your own camel 30-day test and see for yourself why more people smoke camels than any other cigarette. How mild, how mild, how mild, how mild can a cigarette be? Make the camel 30-day test and you'll see. Smoke camels and see. And now, back to Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. One thirty in the morning, standing in the middle of what was left of a gutted sideshow tent, standing with the members of the Sylvester Carnival troupe, looking down at the burned body of a girl. A case with a simple beginning, and then a fire, and a girl dying in the fire. The crowd spread out as the fire department moved in to look for a cause, and Dave Sylvester, the owner, identified the body. Ah, Dixie Jones. She slept in the tent. Poor little Dixie. Oh, hello, Mr. Diamond. Hello, Mr. Sylvester. It's a terrible thing. Yeah. Mr. Diamond? I'll beat it, Adam. I'll talk to you later. No sense in letting people know we're acquainted. All right. All of a sudden, I smelled smoke. See, I thought that I was dreaming or something. Rick? Oh, hello, Ray. Isn't it awful? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Oh, poor Dixie. Uh, Rick? No? Uh, will you walk me back to my trailer? Sure. Cold? Yes. You act like you got a chill. You better take my coat. No, it, it's, it's all right. I, I'll be all right. Well, uh, good night, honey. Uh, Rick? Yeah? I, I don't feel much like sleeping. Why don't you come in for a while? Well, what's the matter, dear? You act as if you're scared. Of you? Well, I don't know what it is, but you're scared of it. That's ridiculous. Good night, Rick. Oops. Mr. Diamond. Well, now, don't start swinging again, Adam. I didn't even hold her hand. I just left the fire. The fire department found out it, it wasn't an accident. What? 
I heard the chief say the fire was started deliberately. They called the police. Well, now the simple case with a fire and what looked like an accidental death had turned into murder. I asked Adam why anyone would want to kill Dixie, the coarse girl. But he couldn't even come up with a guess. I warned him again about keeping our relationship a secret. I went out to the corner to wait for the police. In about 20 minutes, I spotted a prowl car with a familiar figure in the front seat. Rick! What are you doing here? Well, I stayed for the late show. It's a nice fire. Just got a 211 report. Some girl in the fire. Yeah. Name was Dixie Jones. Hey, Walt, look, uh, nobody around here knows I'm a private cop. You want it kept that way? Yeah, for a while. Okay, climb on the running board. We'll drive down. We drove down to the scene of the fire, and I stayed in the car while Walt and Sylvester looked at the body of the dead chorus girl and talked to the fire chief. A couple of times, I spotted Adam standing off to one side, watching. And if he noticed me in the car, he did a good job of not showing it. Sometime later, Walt came back, and we took a drive. I told him everything up to date, how Adam had hired me to find out what was troubling his lady love, how I'd gotten the big pitch from her, her obvious dislike for the Sylvester's, and everything leading up to and after the fire. Well, that's sure not much. I know it, I know it, Walt, but there's one thing, sure. Rowena was scared stiff after the fire. Sometimes fires do that. No, it was something more, Walt. This dame lives high. Mink coats, jewelry that runs into a lot of carrots. She has a real taste for anything that smells like that green stuff. I flashed a roll when I went in to see her show. She acted like a steady date when I went back to her dressing room. Uh, Rowena doesn't make enough money at this carny to buy all those things, Walt. Well, I'm having the whole troop brought in for questioning. Maybe we'll uncover something. This client of yours... Adam Rayburn? Yeah. What does he know? Oh, apparently not much. He's so in love with that dame, he can't see anything else. What does he do? Well, he's advertised as the skinniest man in the world. He's nearly eight feet tall and weighs a good 140. He thinks Rowena's in love with him. Are you kidding? Rowena... A dame like that? Yeah. Poor guy. Walt dropped me off in my apartment and I got some sleep. The next morning, I went down to the precinct and listened through an open line as Walt interrogated the entire troop of the Sylvester Carnival. It took all morning and most of the afternoon. Rowena answered her share of questions and her voice was shaky and cautious. Adam answered his admitting his association with me only after Walt informed him the fact was known. The last two questions were Dave and Paula Sylvester. I have no idea why anyone would want to start a fire. How about wanting to kill Dixie? I can't imagine. How about you, Mrs. Sylvester? No, Dixie was just a nice kid, slept in the tent. I don't know why anyone would want to kill her. Mr. Sylvester, how long have you known Rowena? Just since she's been with the Carney? About uh, five years, I guess. First break. First head of a cover-up. Dave Sylvester had said he'd only known Rowena since she'd been with the carnival. I left the precinct thinking about the time I'd spent with Rowena and the fallen duck. She'd said she'd known Sylvester for a long time before she joined the carnival. I grabbed a cab and went back to the carnival grounds where I hung around until my client showed up. We found a quiet spot and talked. No, she's never said much about Dave or Paula. Oh, how about the girl who was killed, uh, Dixie? Well, they were friends, that's all. 
Why, have you found out something? How much money have you given her, Adam? Oh, no, no, wait a minute. How much? Well, not much. How much does she make? About 200 a week. Then who's buying those minks? Well, she is. And the jewelry? What do you mean? She told me she bought those things with money she'd saved. Out of 200 a week? Well, yes. Well, then why ask you for more? Because she needed it. I, I didn't ask her why. She likes nice things. We're in love, Mr. Diamond. A man doesn't ask... Okay, Adam, okay. I lost myself for the rest of the afternoon in the newspaper files, looking up past history on David Sylvester, his wife, and Rowena. There was a story about David and Paula the day they got married, and enough about Rowena to give me a pretty fair background. She'd been in show business for a long time, from parents in the business. Never done much until she joined the carnival, and then her fame spread far and wide. There were some publicity pictures that certainly showed why she had become a headliner. She'd been married once to a man named Black, who had disappeared ten years ago, a small-time agent who had left her stranded in a hotel somewhere in Ohio. And according to the article, he was wanted by the police for a forgery rap and left her holding the sack. I looked some more, but I couldn't find anything about a divorce or that Black had ever been caught. At seven o'clock, I let myself in Rowena's trailer. I sat down and waited for her. Hello, Rowena. Rick. I'm glad to see you, Rick. Oh? Well, I'm a private cop, honey. Still glad? You're a... Private cop. Yeah. I don't understand. Well, I think I do. Whatever happened to your husband, Rowena? Oh, Rick. Whatever happened to him? Name was Black. Left you stranded in Ohio with a forger wrap pinned on him. What happened to him? I don't know. He, he disappeared. I, I... How do you manage to buy minks and diamond bracelets? Rick, what is all this? Why How you... come Sylvester hired you and shoved you right to the top when you didn't even have a reputation? I don't like this, Rick. I don't think it's I any... I don't like it either. Now, tell me about Dixie. Why was she killed? I don't know. Rick, you don't think I... It's I'm... the one thing I've got to tie up. Whoever set fire to that tent, did they think it was you in there? Don't be ridiculous. Well, see how ridiculous this sounds, honey. Dave Sylvester is your missing husband. No, no. He's paying you to keep your mouth shut. Get out of here. You don't care who you pick on, do you? If you can't blackmail a guy, you work him, like Adam Rabin. Poor guy thinks you're in love with him. Get out! Get out! How much did you get? A couple of lousy dollars? Anything for a buck, huh? If you don't get out of here, I'll have you thrown out. I want to know why Dixie was killed. And, baby, you're going to tell me. <laughs> Rick, please. Oh, it won't work, honey. Now, what was the connection? Please. Baby, if you know why she was killed, that makes you an accessory before the fact. I'm not very happy about you, honey, and I'd be more than willing to do my bit to see you get a few years. Rick. <laughs> Now, you better tell me all about it. It'd be a lot easier. All right. Dave, Dave Sylvester is my husband. His real name is Martin Black. You're right, I, I was blackmailing him. Somebody fired two shots through the open window and nailed her twice. I caught her, she dropped, and I lowered her to the sawdust floor. I kept my arm around her because she couldn't do much more than look up and smile a tired smile. Thanks. Thanks for the lift. Honey. It's all right. 
Dixie was keeping the marriage license for me so, so Dave wouldn't find it. I guess he did anyway. He must have killed her and set fire to the tent. I'll get a doctor. I gotta say something, Rick. No excuses. I, I took Adam. I took everybody. It mixed up. I was going to take you, and something happened, I guess. Maybe, maybe I thought you might be the boy on the white horse. Baby, look. Telling the truth, Rick. A lady wouldn't lie at a time like this. No, I guess she wouldn't. I put a pillow under her head and went out. The carnival had suddenly turned into a bad dream, a lot of noise and confusion. There was a killer loose, and I wanted to get him. Look out, Diamond! It was Adam Rayburn again, standing near a tent. David Sylvester had been waiting for me to come out. Sylvester jumped as Adam yelled and turned his gun on Adam. He caught Adam with the first one, and the big, thin guy toppled like an anemic sapling. I got my gun out, but Sylvester had disappeared in the darkness. Go get him! I'm all right. I circled the tent and spotted Sylvester running up the main drag. He turned and tried a quick shot. (laughs) People started running when they got the idea, and I kept low, trying to stay in the clear. The place emptied faster than a ballpark in a thunderstorm, and Sylvester was caught on the empty walk. He turned for another shot, but I beat him to it. (laughs) The slug knocked him sideways, and he staggered into a building, and I went in after him. It turned into the weirdest chase I'd ever gotten mixed up in. I found myself looking at a dozen Richard Diamonds and an equal number of Dave Sylvester's. I was faced by a room full of mirrors, and to top it off, a recorded laugh was playing over and over. A gimmick to show the public how much fun they could have inside. Oh, some fun. The dozen Sylvester's had all turned and taken a shot at the dozen Diamonds, and the dozen Diamonds suddenly became one less. It was a process of elimination. Sooner or later, one of us would stop hitting mirrors and get the real thing. I picked one of the Sylvester's and we both went to work. Lousy mirrors. Yeah, you shot every diamond but the right one. Turn me over, will you? Get my face out of this stuff. Sure. Don't mind dying, but I hate to watch myself doing it. Dick Powell will return in just a minute. Again, doctors in all branches of medicine have been asked this question. What cigarette do you smoke, Doctor? Again, the brand name most was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Baseball is getting underway, and it's interesting to note that Camels are the favorite cigarette of many baseball players. Bob Lemon, Vic Rashi, Howard Paulette, Dick Sisler are a few of the stars who choose Camels for their rich flavor, cool, cool mildness. Try Camels yourself. How mild, how mild, how mild, how mild mild can a cigarette be? Take the camel 30-day test and you'll see. Smoke camels and see. 
Here's Dick Powell with a special message. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the makers of camels are sending gift cigarettes to our wounded and disabled servicemen. These cigarettes are forwarded to and distributed by the Military Air Transport Service, United States Air Force, which evacuates virtually all overseas wounded personnel. Gift camels are also on the way to Veterans Hospitals, Fort Meade, South Dakota, and Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. U.S. Army Station Hospital, Camp Campbell, Kentucky. U.S. Naval Hospital, Beaufort, South Carolina. Now, until next week, enjoy camels. I always do. Dick Powell can now be seen starring in RKO's Cry Danger. Tonight's adventure of Richard Diamond was written by Blake Edwards with music by Frank Worth. Our director is Helen Mack. Featured in the cast were Arthur Q. Bryan, Michael Ann Barrett, Sandra Gould, Sheldon Leonard, Paul Duboff, and Bob Bruce. Men, for pipe pleasure, get the National Joy Smoke, Prince Albert. PA has a rich flavor and wonderful natural fragrance. It's crimp cut for cool, smooth smoking and specially treated to ensure against tongue bite. You'll enjoy Prince Albert, America's largest selling smoking tobacco. Listen next week for another exciting transcribed adventure of Richard Diamond starring Dick Powell. This is your FBI. The official broadcast from the files of the FBI follows immediately. Stay tuned. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is the American Broadcasting Company. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. Those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end. But they never learn. Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum, the refreshing, delicious treat that gives you chewing enjoyment, presents for your listening enjoyment Raymond Chandler's most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. To make every day more enjoyable, treat yourself often to refreshing, delicious Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum. Here's a taste treat you can enjoy indoors, outdoors, at work, or at play. The cool, long-lasting mint flavor refreshes you. The smooth, steady chewing helps keep you fresh and alert. Adds enjoyment to whatever you're doing. Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum. Healthful, refreshing, delicious. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, the makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum are glad to bring you tonight's exciting story, The Iron Coffin. I wouldn't touch your proposition with someone else's ten-foot pole, period. Furthermore, I... Hello? Would you connect me with Mr. Marlowe, please? Philip Marlowe, the private investigator. This is Philip Marlowe. Oh, I'm so glad I caught you. Mr. Marlowe, you've been very highly recommended to me by a very dear friend, and I want to employ your services for a case. All right, who are you? I'm Catherine Newbold. Uh-huh. It's about my daughter, Irene, or, or more exactly, about her fiancé. I want you to find him for me. 
He's 26, dark complexioned, about 5 feet 10. And well, just a minute, of... Mrs. Newbold. It's a little early for descriptions. What's the nature of his disappearance? Mr. Marlowe. Yeah? I'm afraid I, I just can't explain over the phone. I'm at the boy's place now. Would you come over here? It's 4220 and a half bronze. 4220 and a half, huh? You see, Bennett is lost and Irene's gone to help him and... She may get lost, too. Well, how do you mean that, Mrs. Newball? Lost where? Back somewhere in the 16th century. After she hung up, I spent a few minutes trying to decide if I should take along my 38 or a butterfly net. But in spite of what I thought she'd said about the 16th century, I was convinced that Mrs. Newbold was a genuinely worried woman. I'd sold myself on that by the time I hit Bronson Avenue. When I finally found number 4220 and a half, I began to unsell myself fast. Said 4220 and a half was a sagging second floor of a weed-ridden tile and stucco heap on the alley, back of a dead delicatessen. The windows were heavily shuttered behind rusty iron grills, and the heavy door was set at the top of a narrow flight of unreliable wooden stairs. Mr. Marlowe? I'm Mrs. Newbold. Hello. <laughs> the looks of this place on the outside, I, uh... Holy smoke. It's rather bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, to say the very least. Uh, these are Bennett Virago's rooms. He's a student. Of what, alchemy? <laughs> His place is a museum. Everything in here must date back to the... Yes, to the 16th century. That's what you said, yeah. That's what I meant. Mr. Marlowe... Two years ago, when my daughter met Bennett, he was a nice, normal boy with a great enthusiasm for history. Uh He's brilliant. I liked him, and Irene, of course, fell madly in love with him. But then... Then what, Mrs. Newbold? Then it began to change. He was working awfully hard toward his doctor's degree, when suddenly he... He seemed to hit a snag. How do you mean? Well, he became obsessed with a particular period in history. Spanish history. (laughs) Well, that's not so unusual. That's how guys become specialists. Oh, but it's more than that. His interest was much more than scholarly. It became a morbid fascination. Oh? Look at these relics, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah. At first, Bennett only studied them. But in the last year, he began to live with these things exclusively. More and more until... Until he left a month ago. And now... Well, I, I just don't know. You know, my guess is the boy needs a psychiatrist, not a private detective. Where's he now? I'm not sure, but this morning a note came from Irene. It was mailed in Santa Barbara two days ago, the day she left. She might be with him. Yeah, but you said you had an idea where they might be. I do. See this book? Yeah. It's a castle. Constructed in the year 1540 by Peter the Cruel of Lerma, near the present city of Valdemoro. Seized in 1562 after a violent struggle by the Count of Castile, Dominique Virago. Yes. And look oh. here. I found this old newspaper clipping in that book there. Uh-huh. It's about that very castle. It says it was torn down in 1887 by an eccentric millionaire bachelor and rebuilt stone for stone on an isolated part of the California coast known as Point Estero. Uh-huh. The man who spent his entire fortune on this single project was Philip Virago. For Pete's sake. And that's where they are. They must be. Well, considering what we started with, that makes sense. I looked it up, Mr. Marlowe. Point Estero is just above Morro Bay, about 
than 200 miles north of here. Will you go up there and and find out what's wrong? I'm awfully worried. I told her the transplanted castles from Spain were not exactly my cup of tequila. But between the check she handed me and the look in her eyes, I, I figured a drive along the beach might do me good. Well, I made Santa Barbara by 4, and by 6.30 I was watching the surly Pacific surf hurl itself at the huge granite lump called Morro Rock. Farther north I got, the manner of the ocean became. A hulking bank of solid black clouds offshore made a hollow mockery out of daylight savings time. And 20 miles beyond Morro Bay, I had to turn out my lights. By rough calculation, the castle was another 10. When 11.7 had turned up on the speedometer without so much as a single battlement in view... I decided to turn my lights back on again and stop for some local advice. My first chance was a combination motor court, restaurant, and mobile gas station. Labeled Summit Light, California. L. Chester Poindexter Prop. Howdy, friend. Bad night to be out on the road, huh? What do you have? Yeah, a cup of coffee. Okay. Driving on up north? No. No, as a matter of fact, I'm looking for that old Spanish castle that's along this coast somewhere. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Got any idea how I can get there? You got business here? Yeah, I might have. Why? Just wondered. Mm. Not a good place, mister. Folks in these parts like to forget it's here. Oh? <sighs> What's wrong with it? Nothing, maybe. Then again, well, it was built 60 years ago by a madman, mister. Brought it over here from Spain, complete, even to the furniture. Mm, so I hear you. They say it belonged to his ancestors, and he brought them, too, every one of their bodies. Their coffins are down there under that castle right now, 13 of them. How do you know? I talked to an old-timer once who helped put that place together. Seven men died on that job, and you know what he told me? One of them coffins is iron, and it's eight feet long. <sighs> you made a great fullback here. Fill it up again, will you? It ain't funny. They say his name was Peter the Crew. Now, look, Chester, you're not lathering yourself up into a ghost story for tourists, are you? You asked me, and I'm telling you. All I asked you was how to get there. You see that light out there? Hmm? Across the bay and past the breakwater? It, wait till she comes around again. There, see it? Yeah. That's up on the summit of Point Estero. Well, the castle's just a mile past that. There's not much of a road in, but you can make it. Okay, thanks. It's right down next to the water. In a nasty, jagged little cove. Altogether, it's three miles from here. Much obliged. There's something else you might keep in mind. Huh? Like I said, I, I don't hold with ghosts. But I know for a fact them coffins are sealed in a crypt under that castle. But they don't stay put. They get thrown around. Folks have heard them thumping. Good night, friend. The highway dropped down close to the quiet bay, which was sheltered by the breakwater. At a hundred yards out, a white sailboat, its mast pointing straight up at the stars. It made a strange contrast to the pounding surf a mile beyond, where I found the turnoff to the castle. It beat a year's depreciation out of my car in ten minutes. But finally, at the top of a small rise, I saw it. The Spanish castle. It was a grim, gray mess of crooked walls and twisted towers that crouched on the shore like something that had crawled up from the bottom of the sea. When I pulled to a stop in front of the main gate, I saw there were lights in one of the lower rooms. I started in and then 
I saw something else. A girl running down the path toward me. You! You there, wait! Please, wait! Oh, you've got to help me. Somebody's going to be killed. Killed? In there, in the castle? Yes. Oh, hurry, please. All right, come on. Thank heaven, I saw your headlights. I'm glad I found you, Miss Newbold. How did you know? I guess right. What do you mean? Well, your mother was pretty sure I'd find you here. I'm a private detective, Philip Marlowe. Oh. What's this about somebody being killed? It's Bennett. He's almost out of his mind, Mr. Marlowe. He's gone down to the crypt under the castle. I tried to stop him, but I couldn't. He's killed down there, just like the others. Like what others, Irene? All the other viragos, all his ancestors. Peter's a cruel old killer. Oh, now, just a minute. Come on. I must sound crazy, too. Maybe I am. It's horrible, please. Oh, baby, baby, take it easy. This is the age of rocket planes and bebop, remember? Not in here. Here it's the 16th century. Oh, settle down. Tell me what's really going on. I am. Day before yesterday, I I was just as skeptical as you are. That's why I came here. But now, Mr. Marlowe Bennett Virago is fighting a battle that's been going on for 400 years. A battle with a monster called Peter the Cruel. The one in the oversized iron coffin downstairs? Yes. Mm. Come on, baby, show me. What I could see in the light of the four candles in the holder I picked up I didn't like. She led me first on a long flight of stairs. Then through a maze of ponderous arched pillars that made the catacombs seem cozy by comparison. Finally, we stopped in front of a heavy door with an iron ring in it. I hauled it open and almost fell in. We were at the top of a deep circular room, carved from solid bedrock. Stairs that must have been designed by a reckless mountain goat followed the curving wall down to the bottom. And there, in the light of a torch stuck in a bracket, a man was working frantically over a big trap door set in the center of the floor. It was Bennett Virago. I told Irene to go back upstairs and wait, and then I started down. Who is it? Philip Marlowe. I'm a friend of Irene. She told me I'd find you down here. Get out of here. I refuse to be responsible. I'll be responsible for me, fella. I'm used to it. Are you sure you can't use some help? You look pretty tired. I'm exhausted. I'm not going to stop until I've settled this business once and for all. And I won't tolerate any interference. Do you understand? No. Interference in what? I'm going to spend the night in the crypt under this door. I've got to know the truth. Listen. If you're really Irene's friend, please take her away into town. That Poindexter's place. She's not safe here. Nobody is. Every document I found verifies it. Verifies what? Mr. Mallow, I'll show you. On one condition. Give me your word that once I'm in there and the store is closed, you'll leave here and take Irene with you. Well? Okay, Virago, it's a deal. Show me. All right. Take that crowbar and help me get this open. Okay. Tonight I broke the seals that were put on this door 30 years ago. At that time, the coffins were in three straight rows. And now? I know what I'm going to find. It's happened before. Hey, Buster, this thing is heavy. You'll never open it from the inside by yourself. Servant Ramiro has ears. Get up in the morning. Quick. Prop it with your bar. I got it. Well, Virago. Stay back. Don't move until I get the torch down there. Now. Look. I saw walls slimy with pale moss. A rotten stone floor scarred with deep fissures. The coffins that had been in three neat rows were scattered in crazy confusion. But that wasn't enough. 
In the middle of it all was the iron one, eight feet long, standing right straight up on end. Now maybe you'll believe me. Virago, listen, wait a minute. Maybe you better think this over. You gave me your word. Yeah, but no kid threw those coffins around like that. Now you're beginning to understand. Get out, Marlowe. Get out fast. Heaven only knows what might happen here tonight. To make every day more enjoyable, treat yourself often to refreshing, deliciously spearmint chewing gum. The lively, full-bodied, real mint flavor cools your mouth, moistens your throat, freshens your taste. And the chewing itself gives you a little lift, helps you keep going at your best. So for real chewing enjoyment that's refreshing and long-lasting, always keep Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum handy. Healthful, delicious Wrigley Spearmint Gum will make every day more enjoyable. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's exciting story, The Iron Coffin. I kept telling myself that Virago wasn't in any danger. That this was 1950 and spirits from the 16th century didn't stand a... a ghost of a chance against a determined man. But I couldn't quite believe it. And things didn't get any cozier as I watched the man with the obsession descend into the crypt. A candle in his hand, casting a crazy chorus of shadow dancers against the dripping wet walls. After the trapdoor crashed shut... I kept holding on tight to the 20th century and things that made it tick. And that helped until I was back up to the basement level. A moment of your time, please, senor. A tangle of gray, black, shaggy hair fell all around a grisly old face that could have scared a Halloween mask. And the rest of them fit from a build that included almost no shoulders, ape-long, scrawny arms... And an outfit that was medieval. I did not mean to alarm you, senor. Yeah, you couldn't miss. It's uh, so dark in here. You're, you're Ramiro? Si, Ramiro. Ah. I, senor, wait upon the master of this house. Even as my father did, and his father before him. Always, senor, Ramiro has been in service in this castle. Always since Peter de Coeur. You mean you came over here from Spain? You were imported with this castle? Si, si, indeed. It had to be that way, senor. None else but Aramiro knows the castle. Every stone, every fixture, every sound in the night. Why, senor, there where you stand, Aramiro stood on that fateful day in the year 1562 when Dominique Verago, the Count of Castile, Sentence Peter the Colonel to his death. Oh, it was an awesome occasion, senor. I'll bet. The story of that day lives in my mind as though I had been present. I hear and see it all. Hear and see the fantastic spectacle in this very room. The place lighted by flaming torches. The prisoner was Peter the Colonel. His legs bound in heavy chains and weighted with an iron ball. The crowd shot the ball. Hey! 
Dominique Verago, Count of Castile, to this day proclaim the tyrannical rule of the prisoner before me at an end. And I do further proclaim that the prisoner, Peter the Cruel, be hanged, wearing the shackles and waists of a common thief. And when his body is dead, I order it cut down and sealed in an iron coffin, the chains not removed. Only by right of the royal blood of our fathers do I allow his remains to be placed in the family crypt below this room. Now, Peter the Cruel, you have heard this sentence. How do you speak? <laughs> I speak, dear righteous ruler, very plainly. This, the day of my execution, is a black day. A black day for you, Dominique Virago, for Castile, for Spain. For in spirit I will not die, not go to the crypt below. In spirit I will not rest until I have had my revenge through all the years that follow this day. This last day. You and your ancestors, beware, Virago. Beware. <laughs> And that, senor, they did, hanged him and buried him below us. That is why I stopped you here, to warn you. Yes, well, uh, tell me, Ramiro, your ancestors, whose side were they on? The Count of Peter the Cruel. Well? The Ramiro served only one man, senor, the master of the house. Even as I today serve only one man. The master of the house. Mm. Good night, senor. He glared at me for a long moment with sickly yellow eyes. Then he stepped back and was gone. Well, a few minutes later, I found Irene Newbold and told her what had happened at the crypt and of Virago's wish that she spend the night at Poindexter's place. When I saw her make one valiant try to keep from going to pieces, I picked up a coat and bag held her firmly by the arm and walked her fast outside into my car. It kept her thinking for a while. When we arrived at Poindexter's, I promised to awaken her at dawn for the return trip to the castle. She thanked me and went to her room, and a few minutes later, I went to mine. After three hours of cigarette-filled sleeplessness had gone by, I slipped outside and watched the summit light that winked at me every third second. I didn't wink back. And the sight of Elchester Poindexter standing at the cliff's edge ahead, looking toward the bay below and the long, wide wash of the full moon didn't help any. Sure. How do, Mr. Marlowe? Trouble sleeping? Yeah, your local ghost made good. He keeps propping my eyelids open. And you don't feel up to much smart joking either, huh, Mr. Marlowe? Poindexter, I'm worried about Virago. And you should be. That Peter the Cruel was certainly a powerful party. Oh, nuts to Peter the Cruel. There's another answer there's got to be. But you said Virago. Yeah, and I meant Virago. Virago in his own mind. He won't even look for another answer. 
He'll keep fighting ghosts until the boys in the white jackets with court orders call for him. And then there's Irene. Uh, Mr. Marlowe, you were saying... Hey, Poindexter. Look out there. See out there that boat anchored in the bay? Yeah. That's the same one I saw from the road before, isn't it? The road I took to the castle? Sure. Only sailboat around here. Spring tide certainly has her dipping for moss tonight, huh? Certainly has. Her, me, and a lot of other things, including the fact that our boy who's chasing ghosts is going to be killed by something very real. If we don't get a move on. Come on, come on. We're all going to the castle in a big hurry. Sure, you're right. I can't believe the answer's that simple. Doesn't matter, Irene. Simple or not, it can still kill. Come on, point, Dexter. We're going to run for it. Every second counts now. You catch up to us, Irene. We're going ahead. Point, Dexter followed me as I ran into the castle and down the stone stairs to the basement and along the passageway that led to the spot above the crypt where I first met Marimo. But we both slammed to a stop at the sight of something I couldn't expect to find this side of the Dark Ages. It was Ramiro again. Only this time, minus his apron and long winter underwear, and plus a head-to-toe black coat of mail with a shiny steel helmet spike on top, tucked underneath his arm. And in one hand, a lantern that swung to and fro with his cackling. In the other, a long sword, vintage lady of the lake. They're fighting down there in the creep. A Virago, the last of the Viragos, and Pity the Cruel. Peter, who is to have his revenge? Get up, <laughs> Come on, point next. We gotta get this door open. No! No, stop! Get stop, lost! Stop, stop, point! Are we in time? Is Bennett all right? I don't know yet. Watch that jerk in the fancy dress. If he gets up, yell. Come on, point next. We gotta get this door open. Come on. Let's have it. It's coming. Look! The crypt is filled with water, just like you said. Help me. Oh, Bennett. Bennett, thank heaven you're all right. Virago, here. Take my hand. Reach for it. There we are. Couldn't have lasted another minute. The water came through the cracks in the floor. And the coffins. They floated. That's right. They're bumping against the sides of the crypt as the thumping sound you people have heard. Yes. And when the water subsides again, the coffins will be scattered all over. Oh, Bennett, darling, you see, it's no angry spirit. Yes, but but why the water, Mr. Marlowe, and why? Why does Peter the Cruel's coffin always stand on end upright? Where does the water come from? The sea, the sea. There's an unusually high tide tonight. Uh, spring tide, they call it. Right, Poindexter? Right. Happens when the sun and the moon are in either direct conjunction or opposition. You see, the castle's so close to the ocean and the crypt's so deep that the water seeps in as the tide rises. And as for Peter the Cruel, he settles upright because the old boy was buried in his coffin with his bondage chain still wrapped around his feet, according to legend. Mm-hmm. Ask Ramiro there. I'd be glad to tell you all about it. Senor, senor, it is more than legend. It is true. True, sir, that no Oh, shut up, Ramiro. And enough of you and your stories. Mr. Marlowe, how did you know? I mean... I mean, what got you here in time? How did you think of the spring tide, Mr. Marlowe? Well, it was a sailboat anchored in the bay, Irene. You know, when I first saw it, its mast pointed straight up at the stars. When I saw it again, hours later, it was dipped forward sharply because the anchor chain had been pulled tight by the rising tide. Well, that gave me the hunch I needed. The hunch we needed, Mr. Marlowe. (laughs) Thanks a lot. I'm glad to be out of the 16th century, and you know something? What? I think I'll stay out. (laughs) 
it was another hour before we left the strange relic of another day. An hour in which everybody found himself thinking of Peter the Cruel's vengeful spirit. Oh, well. The tide took care of him. Oh, Marlowe, did you hear that? Uh, uh, no, no. Yeah, well, as I was saying, that's the beauty of reality. Yeah, you can figure everything out. Marlowe, there it is again. Oh, that's nothing. It's probably just the wind. Figure? Ramparts? Uh, oh. <laughs> well, that's Ramiro. Uh, or is it? Remember, friends, to make every day more enjoyable, treat yourself often to refreshing, delicious Wrigley Spearmint Chewing Gum. There's lots of cooling, real mint flavor in every stick. And chewing Wrigley Spearmint helps keep you feeling fresh and alert. You feel better, work better, get more fun out of doing things. So indoors, outdoors, wherever you go, keep some healthful, refreshing Wrigley Spearmint chewing gum handy. To make every day more enjoyable, treat yourself often to delicious Wrigley Spearmint chewing gum. <laughs> Adventures of Philip Marlowe, presented by Wrigley Spearmint Gum, bring you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and star, Gerald Moore. Philip Marlowe is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Irene Tedrow, Lillian Bayef, David Ellis, Jane Novello, Parley Bear, Barney Phillips, and Edgar Barrier. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. The makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum... Hope you've enjoyed tonight's adventure of Philip Marlowe and that you're enjoying Wrigley's Spearmint Gum every day. We invite you to be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time a dying man's last wish led me from a gunman with orders to stop me past a battered corpse in a crumbling mansion to a ruthless redhead playing for keeps. And when it was over, the one in the middle got away with everything. Except the dying man's last wish. This is Bob Stevenson speaking, and this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Ah!